We're going to be in 2 Corinthians today. If you want to start flipping in that direction, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians and we are going to be in chapter 5. And while you are heading over there, uh, you can tell that Pastor Mike is not here today. He has uh, been gone this last week and he'll be gone this coming week. He's with his family at Hume Lake. So uh, pray for them that they would have a refreshing time up there. And uh, if you do need to talk to a pastor this week, there's always someone at the bottom of your bulletin on the insert that you can call. Uh, it's either me or Randy, and feel free to call us, or you can call the church office, and we'll connect you with a pastor or an elder. Uh, but just want to let you know, Mike is uh, out of cell phone service, so if you call him and he doesn't respond, that's why. But uh, So I will be with you the next two weeks, and we are going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And once you are over there, if you're able, uh, would you stand with me? And we're going to be reading just one verse this morning. We're going to be, uh, for the next two weeks, looking at 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God's word says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Lord, we ask and pray this morning that you would stamp the truth of the gospel uh, more fully and more deeply onto our hearts, uh, that those who are believers today would be strengthened and encouraged by it, that uh, your word would reign supreme in your church. And um, Lord, we pray that any unbelievers here would come to faith and repentance, that they would trust in Christ and bow before him. And Lord, you know that I need your help. Uh, you know that I need your strength and wisdom, and so I pray that you would make your word uh, clear today and that it would pierce our hearts and that it would uh, bring you honor and glory and bring us uh, great joy in your presence. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, we are going to be in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, and what we're going to be talking about for the next two weeks is the gospel. And... It's sad to say, when I started thinking about this verse, it, it's so deep and it's so profound, and I, I was getting nervous to preach about it, but not because it's deep and profound. I was nervous because I thought, well, they've heard this before. They've heard the gospel. They, they know this already. It might, maybe they'll think it's boring. And I realized I needed to repent and ask God to forgive me because the gospel never gets old for a believer. The deeper you go into what God has done for us, the more beauties and truths and magnificent glories you see in the gospel. And so uh, for these next two weeks, uh, we are basically, it's Mike, as Pastor Mike's been walking us through the book of Romans, that whole first 11 chapters is gospel over and over unfolding the truths of the gospel. And what we're going to kind of do in the next two weeks is come to this place where Paul has simmered it down and boil it down into this one statement. And so we get to uh, hopefully see and be encouraged by the gospel in this passage. And you might be asking, you know, why, why do Christians need to hear the gospel? Why would they need to hear it over and over again? And we could talk about a lot of different reasons. Uh, we know that there's a biblical model of it. Romans, uh, the whole first 11 chapters are gospel, the whole first half of Ephesians, the whole first half of Colossians. Paul knows that believers need the gospel 
just as much as unbelievers. We could talk about how the gospel is so foolish to our natural self that we, we've got to constantly re-impress it on our hearts. We could talk about how the gospel is where we see God's glory at its pinnacle, and that's where we are able to worship most and be transformed into his image. We could talk about how the gospel is a reminder of the hope that we have in heaven and helps us to live today. We could talk about how the gospel stirs us up to share the good news. We want to tell others about it. And we could talk about how the gospel reorients us to reality. It frees us from self-obsession. It reminds us that God is the center of the universe, not, not us. But what I want to focus on this morning, there's many reasons, other reasons we could even talk about, but I want to focus on the gospel because the gospel helps give us as believers a worldview and a lens through which to view the events that happen to us in our daily lives, in week to week, day to day. And there's a quote by a British pastor, and he's preaching on Psalm 42 where David says, why are you cast down, O my soul? David's speaking to his own self, and the pastor says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? And the point is that the gospel provides us these precious truths so that we can tell them, preach them to ourselves in the daily issues of life. When you wake up and you feel depressed and you don't want to get out of bed and you feel numb and you don't want to do anything, when you fail the test at school or you bomb the presentation at work, when you're becoming uh, frustrated in your fight against sin, you feel like you're stumbling in the same sin over and over and over again, when you experience pain or trials or anxiousness or fear, when you get home and your spouse just wants to talk with you and you just want to be done, when the baby cries again in the middle of the night, when your feet hit the ground to get out of bed, we've got to have truth in our mind that we are speaking to ourselves, reminding ourselves so that in those moments we can worship Christ as he deserves. Does that make sense? Yes, the first two services, usually first is quiet and you guys are loud. So am I, maybe I'm unclear, but that's where we're going this morning. Where our goal is to understand the gospel more clearly, more deeply, so that we would worship and preach that gospel to ourselves if we're believers. And if you're not a believer, uh, our, my goal this morning is exactly what Paul says in verse 20. We, we implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, that you would believe and trust in him. So, as we come to 2 Corinthians, in this book, Paul is describing his ministry for the Corinthians, and he's making this whole point about how the new covenant is this way more glorious, he has the, this more glorious ministry than the old covenant, and he goes on to talk in the few verses leading up to the verse we're looking at, he repeats this word reconciliation over and over again, and he describes how he has a ministry of reconciliation, that God the Father is reconciling men and women, boys and girls, to himself through Christ. Like we said, he says, we beg you, we implore you to be reconciled to God. And then he gives this succinct, one-sentence statement, one of the, the most precious statements of the gospel in all of the Bible. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
So what we're going to do over the next two weeks, this first week we're going to look at basically the characters or the actors involved in the gospel, and then next week we're going to see their interaction with one another, kind of what happened on the cross. So this week, if you look at your verse, you can see there you have, listen for the different characters. For our sake, he made him to be sin. And that, that is the engine of the verse. He made him to be sin. Everything else kind of modifies that or is tacked onto that. And so you have, if you look there, you have a, a he, a him, and you have for our sake, you have us. He, him, and us. So that's how this morning's going to break down. We're going to look at he, him, and us and the different roles in the gospel. And because of the context, because of the verses preceding, we can say that that he is God the Father and that him is God the Son, Jesus. So we could read it as, for our sake, God the Father made Jesus to be sin. And on the verse goes. So, before we get into, into the meat of this, I just want to say, uh, I, uh, we, are not, we don't have a specific point on the Spirit, but that's not because the Spirit is not at work. The Spirit is at work in salvation. The Spirit was at work in creation and will be at work all the way to eternity future. Uh, we believe that the Spirit is God. We honor Him. We worship Him. And yet in this verse, Paul's focus is on the Father and the Son. And so uh, don't hear me leaving out the Spirit and think that I'm saying that he's not at work or that we don't honor him. Uh, we, we love the Spirit, we worship him, but today we're looking at the Father, the Son, and us. So, when you read this verse, for our sake, he, you come to that he, what do you think of when you think of the Father? What comes to your mind? When you think of the Father, let's see, what does Scripture say? Scripture says, we're going we're gonna to get to do a kind of a mini systematic theology right here. It says that God is the creator of everything in Genesis 1.1. The entire universe was made by him. It's the work of his hands. And think about how that means that from his mind came every type of plant, every type of animal, every beautiful place you've ever seen or been to or not seen, every food, all music, every good thing you've ever experienced or that's ever existed came from him. He's not just the creator, he's the sustainer of everything. In Genesis 50, we see that he's the God that turns evil to good. Remember, Joseph says to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He's the God who turns evil to good. In Exodus, we find out he's the saving God, the God who knocks out all the other Egyptian gods and says, I am Yahweh, I alone am God, and I will rescue you and save you. The Bible says that God is independent. He needs no one. He needs nothing, never lonely, never hungry, never tired. He's never experienced any need. He's even independent of time. Think about this. He, he's outside of time such that eternity past to eternity future, he has always existed. No beginning and no end. When you think about the Father, think about how he is unchanging. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He is stable. His character is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You can always go to him, and he's never in a bad mood. He doesn't have ups and downs. He doesn't have uh, bad days and good days. He's always the same, always constant, always unchanging. Think about how he's all present. There's nowhere that you can go where he won't be with you. As a believer, that is so comforting. He is he fills all of space for all of time, and not just part of him in some places, all of him at every point of time, at every point of, of space in the universe. When you think of your father, this one blows my mind, and in seminary, we get to spend like a whole hour and a half just talking about this. 
that God is all-knowing. Think about this for a moment. I'll try to go slow, but I get excited and I speed up too quick. Think about this. He knows every single thing in every single place at every single time and the inner relationship between all of those things and he knows every possible thing at every possible location in space, at every possible point of time, in every possible relationship to every other thing in the universe. Do you realize the, the, how that multiplies out? And he knows it right now without a database to search, instantly, always present, in the moment, now. Think about his mind. That is incredible. He is all present, he is all knowing. When you think about your father, think about how he is all powerful. There's no category of difficulty for God. Whether it's making the universe, he just speaks it into existence. Psalm 19 says it's the work of his fingers. Whether it's uh, changing the heart of a hardened sinner, whether it's healing someone of a disease, it's all easy for him. Nothing is too hard for our God. Think about, when you think of your father, think about how he is good. It's not just that he conforms to some standard of good. He actually defines what good is. Any legitimate pleasure you have ever experienced or will experience originated in him. Love, joy, laughter, peace, sacrifice, comfort, humility, friendship, music, food, rest, physical activity and all the sports and fun, uh, physical activities, and countless other things are just like little, little beams of light and he's the sun. Every good thing comes from him. He defines what good is. Think about this. Think about your father as he is love. Once again, it's not that God conforms to a standard of love. He defines what love is. We know what love is because of how the father relates with the son and how the son relates with the spirit. The trinity and the way they interact is what defines what love is. And whenever you experience any good uh, love or friendship or intimacy or any good relationship in this life, that's just a small whisper of what the Trinity has experienced for eternity. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's patient, he's holy, he's righteous. He always values everything exactly as it should be, and he always acts exactly as he should. He is righteous. That means also that he judges fairly. He is not a God who would say to a Hitler, oh, uh, it's not a big deal. We'll just sweep this under the rug. Uh, you can get off. It's no big deal. He always deals rightly with sin. Always. He never does anything wrong. So when you think about your father, think of that, and also think what is his role in salvation, in the gospel? The father, look at this. In the, in the verse, look down at the verse, and I'm going to read it, and you tell me who is doing the action. You've got he, him, and us. Who does the action? For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who does the action? Who? He, he the father. The fa See, we sometimes think, here's the father back here, saying, you sinned, you we're bad, I'm really angry, and now you forced me to send my son, and I've got to clean up your mess, and ugh, fine. That's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture, the whole trinity is working in salvation, but God the Father's specific, unique role is that of the initiator. 
He initiates the plan of salvation. He is the one that sent the Son. Ephesians says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He adopted us. He predestined us for adoption as sons by his love. John says, see how great the Father's love is for us that we should be called children of God. The Father is the one that says, you were running from me. And I pursued you with all of my goodness and all of my mercy and all of my kindness while you were running away. The Father is the initiator. So when you see that he, when you're reading and you see, for our sake, he, don't be satisfied with a small, tiny view of God. Be, be asking God to help you to see all of who he is and all of his fullness. And that as you, as you read your Bible, ask him to reveal himself to you so that you would think of him as he is, that you would see his great love for you that has made you his child and pursued you. And this is almost unbelievable. But if you are a believer, Romans 8, we're going to get to it with Pastor Mike, but Romans 8 tells us that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. If you've trusted in Christ, all of those attributes that we just scratched the surface of, we could have gone way more, way more in depth. We just scratched the surface. All of those attributes are now at work for you as a believer, for your good. When you think, when you think about that infinite web of knowledge that God has, when you think about his infinite power, when you think about his perfect love, all of those are bent towards working every detail of your life out for your eternal joy and good if you have trusted in Christ. All of his perfect righteous, think about it, God as a righteous judge is actually a terrible thing if you're not a believer because it means that the best, most righteous, God-glorifying thing for him to do would be to condemn you. But when you become a believer, it totally flips because Jesus' righteousness is counted towards you. And so when God sees you, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son. And First John says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. God would be unjust to not forgive you as a believer. And so all of his attributes are now for you if you are a believer. When you think about his unchanging nature and you think about that he is all-powerful that's the power that's holding you in his hand when he says no one will snatch them out of my hand the power that spoke the universe into existence that's what's holding you there and his unchangeable nature is the same nature that said no one who comes to me i will i will if anyone who comes to me i'll never cast them out i will never lose one of my sheep and he'll never go back on that promise or change He never tires, he never grows weary, he never needs rest. The God that has never experienced need is the same God that can watch over your soul moment by moment without a blip in attention. And he is as glad over you this moment as the first moment you put your trust in Christ. Even as we saw last week with Pastor Mike, we can now call him Abba, Father. We're his children. So when pain comes or trials come or death or depression or sin seeks to destroy you, don't run from him. Don't think he is angry or distant or hiding his face. He is actively bending all of his all-powerful, all-good will for your benefit and your eternal good, which Romans tells us is that we would be conformed to the image of his son. 
We need to remind ourselves these truths. We need to tell ourselves these things when the week draws on and we get frustrated or angry or sad or depressed. So when you think of the Father, think of, think of all of his attributes and remember that he is for you if you have trusted in Christ. So there, there's the he. Now we get to the, the him. Who's the him? This is God the Son. And I think we have some junior hires in here. We're going to kind of use the same, uh, the same four things we just talked about in junior high, kind of mental coat hangers. The Bible describes Jesus as God, man, Savior, and Lord. And so when you think about Jesus, think about him first as God. He has always existed. He was in the beginning with God, and not anything was that was made, was made apart from him. He created this universe. He's governing the universe. In him, all things hold together, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power, Colossians 1 tells us. All those attributes that we just talked about that the Father possesses, Jesus also possesses them in their fullness and entirety. He's not part God. He's not mostly God. He's not God when he's in heaven and human when he's on earth. He's always all the way God, all of the attributes of God, all that God is, Jesus is. He is the I am. He's one with Yahweh. So he's God, but he's also man. He's truly human. Your hand wouldn't go through him if you tried to touch him. He's not a ghost. Thomas found that out, right? He, he really was a man, and he was tempted in every way as we are, and yet without sin. He experienced all the aspects of life that we do, grief, joy, happiness, pain, exhaustion, hunger, and yet without any hint of sin. And I've been asked this before. Um, actually, the person who asked me this is in junior high, and they're in the room right now. Uh, they've said, well, if he's God, then it, it must have been easy for him not to sin, right? I mean, he's God. You he just, he just don't sin, right? But the best analogy I've heard, I heard a preacher use this analogy once. You could compare it to... Um, like a weightlifting analogy. If we took one of the children in our church, one of the little guys, and we came up here and we put some weight on their back, they could handle a little bit, but after a while their legs are going to give out. If we took one of our college guys or our big strong guys at the church, we put them up here, you could load the barbell up with a few hundred pounds, but eventually they'd, they'd buckle. You put Christ under that bar, 250, 300, 500, 700, 1,000, 10,000, he never buckles. That's how it is with temptation. We, we buckle quickly, but Christ could stand up under the weight of temptation, and you can load that bar up as heavy as you want, and he never, ever buckled once. That is a man worthy of worship. That's a man worthy of what Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Amen? So when you think about Jesus, and you start to see how incredible his life really was, it kind of leads you to this next thing. He's, he's God, he's man, he's Savior. And this is his unique role in the gospel. If the Father is the initiator and the sender, the Son is the Savior. He's the one who carries out the rescue mission. That's his unique role. And so he's God, he's man, and he's Savior. And you start to see this. He, he had to be God. He had to be fully God because no man could be truly spotless in the sight of God. 
and no man could bear the wrath of God. Only God can bear the wrath of God. And so in three hours on that cross, Jesus was able to swallow to swallow hell for all those who would trust in him. He had to be God to do that, but also he had to be man because, listen, Jesus doesn't just bring us to neutral. He doesn't just bring us to forgiveness. He then clothes us with all of his perfect obedience, and he had to live an obedient human life as a man to earn the righteousness for us that we could never earn. And so when theologians talk about Jesus, they kind of use these two terms, passive obedience and active obedience. And what it means is that Jesus was passively obedient in that he submitted himself to the Father. He humbled himself to be fully obedient. Philippians 2 says that he humbled himself to take on the form of human flesh, the form of a servant, even more than that, to take on death on the cross, to the point of death on a cross, a criminal's death. And he humbled himself to experience all the pain of the curse in this world and to experience all of the evil of this cursed world, and yet without any sin in himself. Arrested, unfairly convicted, murdered, bearing the weight of our punishment. But even more, he was also actively obedient. And what that means is that he fully fulfilled every aspect of the law. You see, the law has don'ts. Do not murder. Do not steal. And he never transgressed. That means stepped over the line. He never... uh, did something that the law said not to do. But the law also has do's. Think about this. Jesus never for one millisecond did not love the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every second of his life, he loved the Father with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. I don't know if I've done that for a second in my life. So he, he doesn't just not step over what the law says not to do. He fills up all the dues. He loved every person he ever met perfectly, all the time. And so when you think about that, that weight analogy, you start to be amazed at this man, this God-man, that could bear the weight of temptation in its highest degree and yet never stumbled in one point and took all of that perfect obedience and now if you trust in him, God sees that when he looks at you. Instead of your sin and in place of your sin, he sees that righteousness of Jesus and he says, justified, cleansed, righteous, pure, holy, loved, accepted. Okay, so Jesus is God, he's man, he's savior, and lastly, he's Lord. Sometimes we we minimize this one, but Jesus has no less authority than the Father, no less power than the Father. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow before him in heaven and on earth and under the earth because he has the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus did not just die. He also was raised from the dead. He conquered death. He became a down payment saying that all who trust in him will one day be resurrected as well and live with him on the new earth forever, on a restored earth. Beware of softening your view of Jesus. He is God, he is man, he is savior, he is Lord, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling over the universe, owning every inch of it. And he says to us, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He does call for total surrender, but he offers us rest. So when you think of Jesus, 
Think of his role as your savior. Preach that truth to yourself. When you feel stupid or worthless, remember that the most valuable person in the universe shed his blood in your place. When you feel stained by sin, remember that Jesus' perfect obedience, passive and active, is counted towards you as, as if it were your own. It's credited towards you and God sees you as perfectly righteous. When you're anxious, when you're fearful and afraid, remember that Jesus has purchased you friendship with God for eternity. Everything else pales in comparison to that. The things that we categorize as bad on this earth, while they do sting and they do hurt and they are bitter, that bitterness is eclipsed by the hope that we will have eternal joy with him forever in its fullness. The, the sting of death has been removed. Death is no longer the great enemy if you're a believer. It's a doorman that ushers you into the greatest joy imaginable. And Jesus has conquered that. When you feel lonely and sad, remember that God didn't just demonstrate his love for you in theory, but he demonstrated it for you by sending his son to die on the cross. When you're weary in, in your battle against sin, remember Jesus with that weight of temptation on him and that he could bear it all and stand up under it. And that power, remember last week, we can cry to him, Abba, Father. That power is accessible to you in your fight against sin when you say, Lord, help me. Father, help me. We need to remind ourselves of these things. Every day, when our feet hit the ground, when we go to bed, when we talk to our children all the time, Okay, so we've, we've got he, we've got him. Last one is us. You see that there, for our sake, us. Now, the father has a really active role in salvation. He initiates, he, he made the plan. The son has a really active role in salvation. He is the one that was sent and he accomplishes the rescue mission. He is also active. But where do we fall in this? What is our role in salvation? To be rescued. That's our role. We don't add one ounce. We cry out, save me, Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Our role is to be rescued. And so what, what does the Bible say about us? We want to be able to read through this verse, and my hope after these next two weeks is that it, it, it makes sense, and it's clear, and it, so when we see for our sake, when we think about ourselves, how should, we, how should we think? Well, the Bible says that we were originally created by God without sin in his image as male and female, designed with dignity and purpose, and that purpose was to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And we did have that right relationship with him, with one another, with his, with his creation, but you know the story. Adam and Eve sinned, and they shattered all that was good, and that made us enemies of God. And since then, every human that is born is born into that family, that rebellious family. And we act on our rebellion by fighting against God. Now, thankfully, this might not be as true in this church, but in our culture as a whole, the world's sin is very unpopular. If you want to be not cool and laughed at and pushed away and all the, you know, scorned, just talk about sin. Sin is so unpopular right now. And it always has been and always will be. But I think a danger for us is that it becomes easy as believers to forget 
the whole biblical picture of certain words when the culture is especially bent on just annihilating all that they mean. And so as hard as it is, we need to remind ourselves and take a really clear, honest look at what exactly the Bible says about us apart from Christ. And there also seems to be an arrogance that marks our culture and it kind of seeps into us without us realizing it. And it's really hard to recognize, but I think it is there because we're situated in such a way, think about this, we become arrogant inadvertently simply by the fact that you live in the time that you live. There's sometimes this tendency to start thinking that, well, history's led up to me. History's led up to us. We're the pinnacle. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. We start to look back at everyone else and think, well, we must be smarter, we must be better, more advanced, more developed, uh, more civilized to everyone prior than us. And we also live at a time where information is so easily accessible. You pull out your phone, you can Google anything in the world, you can FaceTime someone halfway across the world, and uh, it sort of creates this mirage of this great learning, and it hides the shallowness of our knowledge, and it hides the fact that we don't really know a whole lot compared to what we think. And also, we live in this scientific age, self-styled scientific age, and that creates the further illusion that, hey, we've, we've explained everything. We understand it. We've measured it. We can, we can walk you through exactly how everything takes place. And, and the fact of the matter is, that just hides the fact that in all of our exploration and learning, we've really just learned a bunch more stuff that we don't know. And see, I mean, think about it. They say that we know less about our ocean than outer space. We don't know anything about outer space. How do we know less about our ocean? There's, a, there's a, an arrogance that can come with that. And the technology that we, we so value and we so think is kind of the, the crown of, of our accomplishments sometimes ends up mastering us. And we are no less susceptible to wind or floods or hail or fire than Pharaoh was 3,500 years ago. We live in a country and certainly a county with unimaginable affluence. Costco, Amazon, Walmart, Target, Google, Apple, and we can keep going, right? And if you want it, we've got it with two-day free shipping. And if you want groceries, now I think you can get those on Amazon as well, but it's two hours and the fruit was growing in the Philippines like a day and a half before. Fruit from all over the world. Just, oh yeah, just send this to my door in two hours. Thanks. We've harnessed lightning, and we can turn on the sun after it's gone down. Refrigeration, we got it. Planned communities, got it. Air conditioning, most of us. We literally can control the weather in our own little boxes. Now, all of those things are wonderful, and I love all of those things, but they kind of feed this underlying arrogance that we don't realize is there, and we start to believe what the world says about us, that we have this kind of nice, glossy shine on us, and things are, things are going pretty well. And we need to hear Jesus' words. This is what Jesus says to, to people who are apart from him. In Revelation 3, he says, You say, I am rich. I have grown wealthy and need nothing but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. No matter how advanced technologically, sociologically, 
no matter how much intelligence, no matter how well connected, no matter how uh, civilized we become, we will never get past the fact that apart from Christ, we are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Our problem is not that we have too low of self-esteem. It's the opposite. And this idea of our weakness, our frailty, our sinfulness is so unpopular. You hear people that are sharing the gospel and they sort of gloss over this or don't talk about it as clearly because they wouldn't want to offend anyone. And I think just it's helpful to stop for a moment and ask, what is sin at its core? Do you ever think about that? If you peeled all the layers back, what is sin at its core? The Bible describes sin at its core as lawlessness. And might not make total sense right now, but when you think about our culture, it lines up. Lawlessness is this idea of, I will have no absolute moral authority to which I'm accountable. I will have complete autonomy. I will have absolute right to choose whenever I want, wherever I want, however I want. I will be like the Most High. I will decide good from evil. That's the, the root of sin. I want to banish any binding moral authority on me. I'm accountable to no one. So let's take an example. Road rage. Or put it in Christianese, you get frustrated with another driver. Now, imagine a dam. Tall, wide, thick, massive dam. Millions of gallons of water behind it, and millions of pounds of pressure per square inch on that wall waiting to burst out. And you walk up to that dam, and you're looking at it, and you notice this tiny little hairline crack, and just the tiniest seep of water seeping out of it. That little seep of water is like that flash of annoyance on the freeway. Ah, he cut me off. Why did he do that? It's that flash of tiny anger. Now, if you're the director for the dam, do you walk up to it and go, the hairline. I, I think we're fine. I think it's not a big deal. Is that what you do? No. Because you know that behind that crack, what is there? Millions of gallons of water. And if you would let them, they would rip apart that dam, rush out, and destroy anything in front of them. That tiny anger, that annoyance on the freeway, if it could, if it could rip through and rip out and didn't have any restraint on it, it would become yelling. It would become screaming. It would, if it could, that screaming would become physical violence. You remember what Jesus said, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I tell you that whoever has hated his brother in his heart is liable to judgment. That little heart attitude that manifests itself as that little drop of water it could, it would be murder. And it's that autonomy exercising. It's what my one and a half year old knows better than anything. Mine, right? And that's what our heart is saying. I will have a free, open freeway and I will drive how I want and if you get in my way, I will annihilate you to get my way. You don't really think that probably when you're driving down the freeway. But that's what sin would be if it could. Lust, think about lust, it's the same way. That second glance would become an addiction to pornography if it could. And that addiction would become, an, uh, would become adultery if it could. And that adultery would become a string of affairs if it could. And that string of affairs would become human trafficking if it could.
Now, like I said, it's not popular to talk about sin, to take the hard look at what the Bible really says about us. And there is a so-called gospel going around today um, that is, I think, especially common in affluent areas. And it presents God as this gentle, grandfatherly man who wouldn't hurt a fly. He's definitely not angry about anything, definitely not sin. It depicts man's great problem as that we've messed up, made some mistakes, we lack self-esteem, we have a misunderstanding of our great value. It says that salvation is a way to restore the life that you deserve and that you will have a meaningful existence and fill that gap in your heart and you'll be complete. The so-called gospel that I'm describing says that the way to be saved is just to say yes to Jesus. And the effects of this gospel, so-called, are that you would go to church, pray before meals, and be a really nice person. Hell is not mentioned because that's scary and offensive. God's righteousness and justice and authority are minimized. God's love is twisted and bent into a tool to serve ourselves. And salvation becomes simply dependent on you making a decision. Just make a perfectly logical decision. Who wouldn't want a Jesus that doesn't demand anything and constantly reassures you of how great you are? But here's the problem. There's some truth in those things. Not everything I just said is an outright lie. Many of those things are true, and yet, that is an anemic, weak, watered-down, man-made gospel. That's not the gospel. That's like handing a Band-Aid to someone who just got shot in the chest. The gospel is that God is the center of the universe and the universe exists for him and was created by him and that he is good and loving and kind and merciful and gracious and perfectly righteous and holy and just and wrathful against evil. The gospel presents our problem as it really is. It says that just like Adam and Eve, we have chosen to reject God's authority, to push him off the throne and to say, I will be God and God and all his creatures will serve me. And this rebellion has led to a thousand mini-rebellions in our life. We look for joy and satisfaction in, in sex, in money, in power over others, in control, in all kinds of different things. And we take the good gifts of God and fight against him. We take the physical bodies that he's given and the abilities that he's given and the time that he's given, and instead of living to please him, we live to please ourselves. You see, that's the difference. You look at someone and you say, well, okay, I can see a murderer on death row. I see that they're sinful. I, and I can even see, yeah, they deserve punishment. But what about, what about that person who's just a sweet person? They give money to good causes. They don't believe in the gospel, but they're just so kind. And God condemns them both because they both live to please themselves. Isaiah 53 says, we have all turned to our own way. We have said, God will not be king over my life. I will be king over my life, and that is the fundamental rebellion of our heart. But here's the beautiful thing. Here is the thing that, the reason that we rejoice and we are glad is because God has made a way. The real gospel offers the real solution to the real problem. The real problem is grave. Sin is terrible, but God's solution 
Salvation in Christ, those who trust in Christ, God has made a way for us to move from enemy to friend, dirty to clean, unrighteous to righteous, shameful to honored, deserving of wrath to perfectly loved and accepted. And the way to get that is through Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll talk about what happened on the cross and more of the details of all that. But I have to jump the gun a little bit and say what happened on the cross is that we should have received all of the punishment and anger of God against our sin. The righteous and good anger. If he doesn't punish it, he's an evil judge. But because he's good, he must punish it. And that fell on Jesus in our place on the cross. And all of his perfect holiness and righteousness and goodness is now credited to us. And when God looks at you, if you're a believer, there is nothing for him to be angry about. He only feels love and joy. He sees you as clean and righteous and holy. And if you don't trust him today, I say what Paul says in verse 20. We implore you, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, to bow your knee to Christ, to trust in him alone for salvation. He promises that he will forgive you and cleanse you and give you a new heart that can love him and that one day you will live with him forever on a new earth where there is no pain, no death, no suffering, no broken relationships, fullness of everything that earth was ever created to be, and this God says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he says, whoever will come to me, I will never cast out. And if you would trust him, all of his power and goodness and mercy will be bent towards your eternal good. So if you're a believer, don't dull the edge of that gospel. When you share it with others, don't water it down. When you tell it to yourself, don't water it down. Don't tell yourself, ah, it's okay, I'm not so bad. Remind yourself, yeah, I am that bad, but that just shows that Jesus is that great and that worthy of worship. When you go through your week, remind yourself of these things. Talk to yourself, preach to yourself in the moment when the pain is unbearable, when there's suffering, when you are feeling depression and you don't want to get up and get out of bed. And if you're not a believer, believe in this gospel. Trust in the Son, in Jesus, and he will save you. He doesn't come with terms of compromise or treaty. He comes with terms of total surrender. So surrender to him and trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we we rejoice in who you are and how magnificent you are, that you have made a way that we could know you. You're the source of all joy and we get to know you forever. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to remember these things this week, that they would sink down into our hearts and into our lives. And Lord, we, we want you to be honored. We pray this all in Jesus' name. We pray it for his glory and his praise. Amen.